Jesus was asked the question by the Pharisees. They tried to draw him into one of the major debates of first century Judaism. What's the greatest commandment? And what they meant by that, of the ten, sometimes called the Decalogue, of the ten, what's the greatest one? Love God with all your heart. What's the most important one? Is it commandment number one? Commandment number four? Commandment number six? Which one's the most? It was a hot debate. And so what Jesus does is he doesn't get drawn into the debate. He doesn't answer them specifically. He says, and Tom's correct, but Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. But if you really look at what Christ is saying there carefully, in that sentence, which is a compound sentence, it's got you know a little and in the middle, he's summarizing the Ten Commandments. The first four, you love God. The next six, you love others. <clears throat> I want to look at it from another angle. <clears throat> we are struggling right now in the United States of America with the absence of an ethical framework in terms of our laws as well as in terms of just basic behavior of people. Uh, I have often written this. The United States of America ethically in 2017 is a culture firmly anchored in midair. It has no foundation anymore. We do not know how to think about ethical issues. We have no ethical framework. We have no foundation. We, we have no structure. We, we have kicked all of that is aside. There, is there is no reference. It's all what? Because there is no reference. Like That's right. There's no, right. That. there's no consensus. There's no agreed upon starting point. And what is, what is really going on is a refrain that I see in the book of Judges. Every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. And that creates havoc. It creates chaos. And it creates a breakdown in almost every aspect of culture. And that's, that's a very, very serious issue. And people that don't even give a hoot about biblical Christianity or the Bible, are saying the same thing. This is causing a crisis in our culture. And so it seems to me, and of course I'm saying that as a teacher of the scriptures and as someone who's committed to this, the solution to this dilemma in American civilization is to get back to the Lord and get back to what he has revealed to us. And you can't do that and I hope you understand the spirit in which I'm saying this, you can't do that just through politics. Just electing the right people isn't going to do it because you can't force people to do this. So it's a, it's really a result, uh, it will really result from people coming to a personal intimate relationship with God where they begin to see things like this the way God sees them and the importance of that. And uh, that's why for me personally to study this is really exciting. And so I've entitled this at the top of these the copy of these slides, the Ten Commandments as a Framework for Ethical Absolutes. I use this in my ethics class that I, I taught for a long time because that is always a little bit, of, uh, you know what the word enigma means? It's always a bit of an enigma 
Where do you start to help young men and women begin to think biblically about ethical standards? Um, how, how do you help them to think through that question? There's no better way to start than to look at the Ten Commandments. So last week, we were sort of in the middle of the first four, and I don't remember if we had gotten to the fourth one or not. I don't believe we did. But in Exodus chapter 20, through the first eight verses, um, you have the first three standards that, again, I'm not going to read all these and review all these because we did that last week, but it's our relationship with God. It's a commitment to a radical monotheism. No other God but the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. And secondly, no graven images, a radical commitment to honor, worship, and adore the Lord. And then thirdly, to not misuse his name. I don't know if we'd gotten that. It says in verse 7, you shall not misuse. Literally, the Hebrew word there is take in vain, treat as empty, treat as meaningless the name of the Lord your God. Now, again, I kind of forget if we'd gotten through this, but the importance of this is the name of God. And notice those those words there in verse 7. The name of the Lord your God. Lord in capitals is Yahweh, your Elohim. For Yahweh will not hold guiltless anyone who misuses his name. The names of God in the Bible, and Yahweh Elohim is, is the most important two names of God, are revelatory. If I use that word, you know what I mean? They reveal truth. They reveal what he's like. Yahweh means he's the the self-sufficient, self-existent great I am. Elohim is the title that is used of God as the creator in Genesis chapter 1. So to treat God's name as vain, empty, meaningless, is to treat a means by which God has chosen to reveal who he is. This is who he is. His names, and it's, there are multiple names for God as he continues to reveal who he is, explain to us really theology and doctrine. This is who he is. And so um, I think one of the tragedy, well, let me rephrase that, one of the evidences of declension or decline in a culture is how how do they use the name of God? What is the common uh, characteristic of their speech? What are the commonalities of their of their language? Um, and I don't know about you, but there's a lot of very highly educated people with great pedigrees whose language is just pretty horrible to be around. And it's it just it's a symptom. It's a symptom of something much much deeper in a person's heart. So it's t- treating God with the kind of respect, dignity, love, and adoration that He deserves as the Creator and self-sufficient, self-existent One of the universe. It matters. And so that's what He's saying: your outward behavior and how how you go through the normal aspects of your day reflect your commitment to me. And so those three are simple. You know, no other God but me, 
No graven images, no idols of God. Don't can't kind of put God into some kind of an image. You can't do that. He's spirit. And it matters how you treat his name. Simple but profound examples of your relationship with him. I want to remind you, we've said this a number of times, but I want to remind you of how radical this was for Israel. Israel lived in a rough neighborhood in the ancient world. Egypt was ridiculously polytheistic. They had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gods with one chief god, Amun-Ra, and then a bunch of other gods. Almost every aspect of nature was symbolized by a god, and usually they're gods, human bodies, animal heads. The Canaanites, their primary god, and there were many, many of them, was Baal. Actually, it was El, E-L, and his son Baal, and his consort, the Asherah. And so it was a it was a, an inf- a fertility cult, cult associated with gross immorality. The Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, a world filled with gods who were angry with the human beings, threw thunderbolts at them and made made their life miserable. What's Yahweh like? There's only one God. And idolatry, creating images of making stone or wooden images, is totally unacceptable. And to treat his name with respect and dignity and honor and adoration and worship. These are radical ideas. So you have this little tiny group of people in a world of polytheistic animistic cultures being called out to a radical monotheistic faith. You and I are beginning to live in a similar culture where there is a a radical, pluralistic approach to religious faith. And to single out and say in 2017, there's only one God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and he's the only way. That's not a real popular message in the polytheistic, pluralistic world, uh, postmodern, post-Christian world, all those labels we could use. Uh, so there's a similarity to an extent to the kind of situation that ancient Israel found themselves in. And then the fourth commandment. It's Let me read it, and then I want to go to the slides and make a couple other comments. It's a little bit long. It's 8, 9, 10, and 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, your male servant, female servant, your animals, or any foreigner who resides in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I want to do a couple of things with this. Last one. There's a few more over there if you want. Yeah, I think it's a work. I think it's a work. I wanted a dark one.
I want you to see something here. Sabbath, which is translating the Hebrew word Shabbat. That's the Hebrew word. And both of these, Shabbat, the Hebrew word Sabbath, if we make it into English, means rest. Now, did you see what the, the, the few verses we read, you see what they're doing? Where does this come from? Where does this command, this regulation, this standard, work six days, the seventh day you rest? The seventh day is not like the other six. Where does that come from? Creation. From creation. So in other words, this whole idea of Shabbat is tied into the creation ordinance of God. And that creation ordinance of God sets the standard for human sexuality in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 of Genesis. But it also, it meaning again the creation ordinance, sets the pattern of how we are to live our lives. What is your life supposed to look like? Your life is supposed to look like this. Day one through day six, you work. Then the seventh day, you rest. Because this was the pattern that God set. I'm having trouble writing here. <clears throat> this is the pattern that God set in his creative work. <clears throat> now that doesn't... The one thing we, we really don't have the freedom to do is say, well, God was tired and he needed a 24-hour day break. That's not the right way to think about that. But what God is doing is he's establishing a pattern of how we organize our lives. And um, workaholics have a problem with this. Radical revolutionaries have a problem. Did I ever tell you the story of what they did in the French Revolution? French Revolution, that was started in 1789. In 1793 and 94, a group of real radical people called the Jacobins got a hold of the revolution. And they abolished Christianity, abolished all spiritual things. They paraded through the city of Paris. A woman, they called her the goddess of reason. We're now going to worship her. And so they restructured the whole work week from a seven-day work week with one day of rest to a 10-day work week and no days off. What do you think happened to productivity? Yeah, went way down. What do you think happened to morale and motivation? Now, granted, this is a pre-industrial age, but it was an amazing. It was an amazing demonstration. God did not make us to work a ten-day week. He made us to function in a seven-day week. And so, what God is doing here is He's establishing a couple of things. Number one, there's one day a week of seven that you treat differently than the other six. Why did God do this in a way that was not a rhetorical question, in a way that was inviting some thought? But think with me about, I mean, this is a, Jesus is, Jesus talks a lot about this in, the, in the, his public ministry in the Gospels. He talks a lot about the importance of the Sabbath. He talks a lot about a proper understanding of the Sabbath. But let's think about what is what is God doing here? You know, uh, when I was a young man, uh, 
I had a good friend and wanted me to go hunting with him, with a group of guys, and I didn't feel like I had the money or the time, and I and I said, I don't know if I can do that, and uh, he encouraged me by telling me this thing from the farm. It says, you know, if you if you take a rest at the end of the field, you plow a straighter furrow, uh-huh. and and he said. We need that rest, mm. you know. And I don't know that he was a, he was a, a very uh, motivated uh, mm. athlete, mm. but I don't know that he was attaching mm. that to the Bible. But, but yeah. we do need that rest. Yeah, it's obviously. Yeah. So, in a sense, we can conclude that the seventh day of rest is a gift from God to enable us to do what he wants us to do the other six days, which is to work faithfully in representing him to bring glory to him. Our bodies need that. Our brains need that. Our emotions need that. But that's hardly the only reason. What are we supposed to do with that seventh day? Stopping and giving the day for family and for God. All right. It's kind of a day of uh, reflection and worship and... uh, Praise and praise and understanding that God is there, so we not depend on ourselves, but depend on Him. It's it's a day that's unlike the other six in that we do not do physical work, according to what we just read, but it's also a day of reflection and worship and devotion to Him. Why do we need that? Constant reminder. Because part of the treaty. What's that? Is it part of the treaty? Well, it is part of the treaty. <laughs> but what? No, it's this is this is eminently practical as well. What will happen if you go seven days and then seven days and seven days and no rest and no worship and no adoration, no reflection? You forget about God. You forget about who He is. You see. What God is doing here is he's establishing, and this is really crucial, this whole idea of Shabbat is part of being in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and it's repeated over and over and over again, God creates the human race in his image. He does not create whales in his image. He doesn't create orangutans in his image. He creates humans in his image. And so we both resemble him and represent him. And so in resembling him, we follow the pattern that he established. He's our creator. He's our sovereign. He knows what's best for us. And so there is a practical dimension to this. Our creator is telling us, this is how I want you to organize your life. Because this is how I organize the days of creation. And so it becomes a pattern, like a, um, like a paradigm of how we are to structure our life. And, um, I mean, I don't know about you, because I, you know, I know you guys, but I really don't know you guys really well. So I don't know how you've lived your life. But I'm pretty certain if you've been a workaholic, part of your life even now, but if you're, well, you're working seven days a week and you're pushing hard every single day and so on, that begins to take its toll physically and emotionally. 
and foundationally spiritually. God is saying six days work, seven day rest. Glenn. Uh, the pattern also is we're, we're habitual creatures. So the pattern also helps ensure that there's a habit of worship, a habit. Right, right. It, it, where do you think that habitual nature came from? What I'm saying, I mean, it, it, it's part of how God created us. Right. He created us in such a way. I don't know if you remember this because this goes back many, many months ago. Well, years, a year and a half ago, when we started studying the book of Genesis. Remember at the beginning, God declares, this is good. He creates light, first day, it's good. He creates human beings in the sixth day, it's good. But what does he conclude about Adam alone? It's not good. Why? That word good means that which establishes order and that which is conducive to life. That's what good means. So if God rests, has a pattern of six days rest, that's good. It's, it's, the, um, it's the way to establish order and stability, and it's conducive to life. Because someone who works seven days a week is a workaholic, devoted to that, never takes time for rest. It will take a toll. And most importantly, it will take a toll on their relationship with God. Yeah. It's like, but the, the, I, I see today and then it was the, the pastors on Sunday. I mean, especially if they have two services, not, that doesn't happen all the time now, but that's a lot of work there too. It is. It is. I know they take Monday off a lot of them. And it is. I, I've been on boards and stuff like that, but also I've been with pastors most of my life to one degree or another. And I want to tell you, pastors are often the worst worst violators of this. They do not take. Sunday is a work day. I mean, I, I almost every Sunday I'm preaching somewhere. And if you do two or three services a day, mm-hmm. you are absolutely exhausted. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rob comes to something I do on Sunday night, and I'm usually quite busy throughout the day. When I get home Sunday night, about 8.15, I am absolutely worn out. I'm saying all that because what boards have to do for their pastors is make sure their pastors are taking a day off. As a matter of fact, if a board, I think one of the functions of a board in the church is a protective function to help protect and guard that pastor because a pastor is just like anybody else. He'll burn out. And you have to make sure they're doing that. So... There are a number of other things I want to talk a little bit about here, real quickly, if you don't mind. This term rest, that, remember, rest is, is the English translation of Shabbat or Sabbath. Rest is a term that's used throughout the scriptures as something much deeper than just a good night's rest, good night's sleep, or a day where you, you, know, you don't do the normal things, you do other things, go to church and so on. Rest has a lot to do, the Shabbat of Scripture has a lot to do with the rest from sin, the rest from the struggle with sin, because it's what is called the rest of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 talks about that. I want you to think with me at one additional level. 
Now, it's in Matthew 11. It's right at the end of the chapter, and I'm sure you've heard this. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened down, and I will give you rest. rest. That's a profound statement by Jesus. What does he mean by that? Now, in the context, he's talking about the the stress and burden upon the first century uh, Israelites with the Pharisaic traditions and laws and legal, 613 traditions. Jesus says, that's not the way to a relationship with me. Come unto me, follow me, and I'll give you a rest. What rest? The rest of the new covenant. So we're going to be talking more about this as we get into the book of Exodus and whatever we're going to do after that. But this is, this is a deep, deep concept in Scripture. And I think so often when we read this commandment or even talk about the Sabbath or now that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is over, Sunday is now the day of worship. We do not follow the old Sabbath ritual. So the importance that we just think of it in terms of, well, we don't do our normal work, we go to church, we take a nap in the afternoon, we might read the paper, and then we'll watch a football game that night. That's our Sunday. It's rest. It's good. That's good. But that's not all it is. It's much deeper than that. And that's one of the things I want to explore. So when, when we read this about the Sabbath, re, re, look at that last sentence of verse 11. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The word holy in both Hebrew and Greek means something set apart something special, something unique. Israel was to be a holy nation. The church of Jesus Christ is called holy. Be ye holy as I'm holy, God says. Set apart, special, unique. And so Shabbat is a unique, special, set-apart day, but a unique, special, set-apart concept that is developed throughout the Bible. Did I say enough to get you interested in this concept? Glenn. In the other cultures where there are periods of rest, there are other patterns, the Egyptians when they were slaves in Egypt, or the Canaanites, they had days off, they have breaks? Typically, no. Typically, no. They worked seven days a week. Now, in Egypt and in much of the ancient world, slavery was the normal way in which employer-employee work was done. But no, it was it was seven days. And Israel, when they were in slavery, particularly after they had been enslaved, they are working seven days a week. This this is instituted now by God. All right. Now let's look at. Numbers 5 through 10. Now here, here is the other aspect when the Lord was asked a question, what's the greatest commandment? So you shall love the Lord to God. That's first four commandments. Love your neighbors yourself. This is what this looks like. Uh, okay, Mark. Uh, you mentioned that there was a kind of a big debate going on around the time of Jesus about the best commandment. Of the 10, which was the greatest. 
what started that and what they meant by the greatest, like what all the, the most effective, the largest one? Priority. Priority. What's the priority? What started that debate? It, 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 uh, I don't know. I don't know if we know that exact answer, uh, Mark. The, um, You're asking a question that it, it, it gets into a variety of levels of complicated uh, discussion. Um, what is beginning to happen by the time of Jesus is rabbinic teaching is replacing Old Testament law. Or let me rephrase that, is supplementing Old Testament law. What I mean by that is what the rabbis say is more important than what the law says. In other words, when um, when the Bible when the the law says I'm not supposed to work on the Sabbath, what does that mean, uh, Rabbi? Does that mean I can walk five steps? And well, the law is very clear. Um, if my my goat falls into a hole, can I sa- save it? Can I rescue it? Or do I have to wait till Monday to do that? I mean, the little practical question is like, where do you go for that answer? You go to the rabbis. Today, today, a Jewish person, an Orthodox Jewish person in Israel will say, Rabbi, can I use this on the Sabbath? Now, some rabbis will say yes. Some rabbis will say, well, it depends on the nature of the call. And other rabbis will say, absolutely not. So from the time of Jesus, and it actually started even a little bit before Jesus, from the time of Jesus, the most important person in your life is the rabbi. Because the rabbi is telling you how to live. And there are schools of rabbinic teaching that are beginning to develop. The Hillel school, the Shammai school, there are two schools of rabbi, rabbinic thinking at the time of Jesus. I'm boring you with details, but that's the way to answer Mark's question. So it was in that debate among these rabbinic schools well, Hillel, which is the most important commandment to you, the priority? So there was a little bit of diversion of God's law into more of a human law. Going on Mark, not a little bit of a diversion, a significant diversion, which is one of the tragedies <coughs> of what happens to Judaism. And that is what Jesus Christ is confronting. And I, sometime you ought to just study this. Just look at the Gospels and note how many times Jesus performs a miracle on the Sabbath. He does it intentionally, on purpose, to challenge the rabbinic thinking about the Sabbath. And so in the Gospel of John, Jesus heals a man at the Pool of Siloam who picks up the mat in which he had been laying for decades, puts it on his shoulder, and what do the rabbinic Pharisees say? You are working. It doesn't matter that this man, who for decades had been at the Pool of Siloam as a cripple, is now walking. That doesn't matter to them. It matters that he's carrying his little mat on his shoulders and is working, therefore violating the Sabbath, therefore you're in violation of our law. And Jesus slams them for that. You have no compassion? You have no empathy for a human being created in God's image whom the Son of Man has just healed and now can walk, and you're more concerned about him carrying his mat 
than the fact that God has supernaturally chosen to heal him. So, but he was establishing his authority and his level as a son of God. That's so, correct. That's, that is exactly what he's doing. But in doing that, Mark, he is challenging the rabbinic traditions and showing their emptiness and lack of authority in people's lives. What's more important? Healing somebody out of the compassion, mercy, and grace of God on the Sabbath? Or nailing somebody for putting a mat on their shoulder and walking out of the pool? He's by saying Sabbath was made for men, not, not men for, for Sabbath. That's correct. That's right. Rob? It's interesting to me because he was in establishing this authority. Weren't the Pharisees then jealous of that? Oh, absolutely. Perceiving it as a threat to their authority. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. as dogmatic as they were, why would they not use that dogma to attack Christ's authority? Yes, absolutely. And they were trying to, they were trying to trick him. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, and embarrass him and humiliate him before the people. Mm -hmm. But as you, I'm sure, know, when you chart all of those instances in the gospel, Jesus is never humiliated, never trapped, and never tripped up. It's wonderful. So uh, I've got a little bit off on the bunny trail there, but what I want to do now is I want to look at, and I want to do it at two levels. Level number one is how would... In 1446 B.C., when the first Israelites read the law and come to understand it, and then how do we use it today, which is really what I'm trying to, to do here on this slide. I've chosen purposefully on the slide each one of these. I introduce it with the word sanctity, because sanctity is an English word that comes from the Greek word for holy. <laughs> so in other words... I want to try to turn these into a positive. They're stated in the original law of, Acts, uh, of Exodus chapter, chapter 20 in a, mostly in a negative way. Verse 12, commandment number 5. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. That is the only one of the ten that has a promise with it. It's the only one of the ten that has a promise. And so I put this in the slide as the sanctity of human authority. Go back to the meaning of the word good in Hebrew. That which establishes order and that which is conducive to life. God has made his world in such a way that we are to submit to authority. I'm taking a little break to let that sink in. That's not a popular idea in 2017. When we're autonomous, Every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, kind of broad stroke statements. But I want you to think with me about this. Well, that looks pretty important, so I better not erase that. So I'll erase what I wrote and start over. There's that.
My argument would be that the lifestyle of the follower of Jesus Christ is a lifestyle of submission to authority. Let's think about that. Submission to authority. Give me some thoughts about that. Submission to authority. Submit to? The immediate thing that comes to my mind is that most Christians I know perceive the difference between the Christian church and the Islamic church as being the difference between having your own autonomy and and having submission to them. Islam means submission, and that's a bad thing. Okay. That's terrible. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 13 says we are to submit to our elder in church, to our church leader. So there's one form of submission. Pardon? It starts by submission to parents. Well, okay. Submission to parents. Submission to God. Submit to church authority. Submission to government. There's a real popular one today. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 is a good place to start there. Okay, we just read about parents. Submission to one another. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And then in the marital relationship. We wish. I know. All right. So, yeah, I mean, here, this would be like Ephesians 5, 23 and following, for example. All right, I mean, just look at that. Submit to the elder to our church. Submit to parents. Submit to government. uh, Or submit to God, excuse me, that's God. Submit to government, the state. Submit to one another in marital relationship. The lifestyle of the believer is a lifestyle of submission. There may no protests. (laughs) Can I just leave that lying on the table for right now? Okay, now, this is hard in, 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 in the... In the culture and world in which we live today, this is a very difficult thing for people to accept. It really is. They tell us right now, do you know, uh, if I use the term millennials, have you ever heard of that? Millennials, that's the generation born from about 1982 to around 2000, 2005. It's hard to get. But it's that generation. The millennials that are just now coming into leadership, in all kinds of organizations. Millennials resist authority. Resent, re, millennials resist all commitment to all institutions. Among millennials today that call themselves Christians, only 30% of them go to church on a regular basis. Why? Because church is authority. Church is an institution. The millennials do not trust institutions, do not trust authority. And so if you lay this out to a millennial, this is a very, they're going to push back on this constantly. Now, granted, you, almost all of these institutions often don't function very well. But those institutions are, were created by God to establish authority and order and stability in life, in family, and in the larger culture. Because if there's no authority... You have chaos. And so 
The sanctity of human authority, where do you learn that? You learn that in your home. Would you agree with that? Please tell me you agree with that. Yeah, I agree yes. with that. I mean, it is, it, where do you learn respect for authority? You learn it in the home. And it is a lifelong respect and commitment. Honor your mother and father. And the promise is God will bless that. You'll live long in the land. Now, for a, a, an Israeli hearing that, they're about to go into the land that God's promised them. Paul quotes this in Ephesians chapter 6. When he says the same thing, obey and honor your parents, for you will live long. It's one of the marks of God blessing a long life. How do you think, it's a broad stroke statement and question, how do you think we're doing with this principle today in American civilization? It's not working very well, is it? It isn't working. Pardon? Culturally, it's huge. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that my daughter is in education. Um, she, she taught fifth grade. Now she's reading coordinator in District Six. But when you when you study how the educational public educational system was found in the United States, Horace Mann was one of the earlier founders of it. He said there's a triangle that must be established for public education to work. One point of the triangle is the family. Another point of the triangle is the church. The third point of the triangle is the public school. What have we done to that triangle? We've decimated it. The, the, The public school is now the institution that takes over the responsibility that used to be the church, and it pretty much has taken over the responsibility of parents. In the sense that the school, public school, is an autonomous entity, not connected to the other two anymore. And I say all that because what's happening then is you have this remarkable breakdown in what this principle that is in commandment number five is to establish, the sanctity of human authority. And Joanna tells me, my daughter tells me, and, and she, it's, it is just, it is for me, I, we were with them on Easter, uh, we had, uh, we had uh, spent Easter day with them, and she was just talking again about what she's seeing among her fifth and sixth graders. And I mean, it's not just disrespect for authority, it's outright flaunting of all authority, and punching teachers, and cursing teachers. These are fifth graders. And she said, it is really, it's, you can't go to parents and ask for their help. And of course, there is no church anymore in the lives of these kids. So here's the public school trying to do what we would hope they can do, which is teach ethical standards to students, teach the importance of human authority to students. It's not happening. And so the word that we use today is dysfunction. There's dysfunction at all levels of authority because if young children are not learning respect for authority in the home, where else are they going to learn it? 
It doesn't mean they can't learn it, but it's just there's a nat- there's a natural God instituted rhythm of re- learning respect and dignity for authority in the home. And if it isn't there, it's going to be much, much, much more difficult for a young child or a teenager or a young adult. Sociologists are telling us one of the reasons the millennials, that generation born from 1982 to about 2004 or 5, somewhere the cutoff, is because of the dysfunction of the typical family. They don't learn respect and dignity of authority in the home. Therefore, they don't trust any institutions because a lot of these institutions aren't working very well anymore. And I'm saying all that because this is how God does that. God is saying, I want the family to be the most important institution in your life. And we're going to see this as we get into the chapters that follow. God lays this out of what he wants to see. And you see, in the Canaanite, in the Canaanite civilization, this this isn't even an important issue. And the Egyptian isn't even an issue. But from God's perspective, the most important institution I'm creating, it's the first one he created. Well, I don't have it up there anymore. It's the first one he created in the creation order. It's the first institution God created. It's a family. It has a profoundly important role to play. And if it's not working, it's going to ripple through the rest of of culture. And tragically, I think that's what we are seeing in our in our country today in many ways. And it's um, it's it's a spiritual issue. I mean you can't pass a bunch of laws in Congress that's going to fix this. It, it, you can't pass laws that are going to fix this problem. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of fathers taking very seriously their role to be faithful husbands and fathers of integrity who instruct and model the way to live before their children. You can't put it in a textbook. And so what what he's saying here is this is a lifelong commitment. I, right now, am facing it with my parents. This is a lifelong commitment. My dad's 92, my mom's 89, my mom has dementia, Last Monday, Mom got in her car. She left at 12.45. I got a call about 6 o'clock Monday evening. My mom was missing. Her reason, Mom has dementia. We've taken the keys away from her now. Mom drove three and a half hours west from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She was found in Bedford, Pennsylvania, driving in the middle of the road. A policeman stopped her, thought she was drunk. She was, she was disoriented. There's dementia. What do we do with that? How do I honor my mom and dad in something like that? And so my sister and I are putting some things together to because we have that responsibility to take care of them. It's a lifelong commitment. And that respect and dignity of authority is learned in the home. And if it isn't learned in the home, it's going to be a lot more difficult. I just kind of a side thought of, you know, with the economy being what it is, um, I think a lot of people are, you have both parents working, mm-hmm. and uh, you know when the wife comes home, on, mm-hmm. when she has a day off, she's got to, she usually doesn't do all the things that are. Mm-hmm. And as a realtor, I can tell you that I I spent many day many days in a row working, you know, and and I know that my that uh, 
I won't say they suffered from it, but my family, they got shortchanged on that, you know. Had I known then what I am learning now, it might not have been so severe. Yeah. And I find it really difficult to to establish it now with them growing up and having their own kids and, and stuff like that. I think that's one of the, and you are correct, Woody, that was a good comment, that today it is not uncommon for both parents, mother and dad, to be working. If that is the case, and there's nothing that prohibits that in Scripture, but if that is going to be the, the, uh, the situation of time, then you both, husband and wife, mom and dad, have to really, really work hard to deal with that. What's this going to look like? How are we still going to accomplish the things that the Lord wants us to accomplish in and with our kids and so on? And that that, but it's uh, it's something that really I think really really have to be discussed. You have to develop a plan. You have to work through that. But to just assume it's going to happen, it probably isn't. And your words, I think, were good words. They were the kids can often really get shortchanged, and and they're not learning. That, there's so much that they're not, but they're not learning that respect and dignity for authority that you want them to learn. Question: Did Satan use the feminist <coughs> movement and other pressures of the time, keeping up with the Joneses, to to attack the fifth commandment? Well, yeah, that would be one example of it. I mean, uh, if I were in and. Uh, that is a kind of a silly comment, but if I were Satan trying to undermine everything God wants in the world he created, I would, I'd put at the center of my bullseye the family. And I would, you know, C.S. Lewis in his uh, wonderful little uh, parable, the screw taped letters, that's one of the things he talks about. That Satan's goal and design is to undermine those institutions that God created to establish order. And I think he he can be very successful in that. And we cannot blame the generation without blaming the previous one, because for submission to be accomplished, authority has to be established. So if the church is not doing its job, if the government is not doing its job, and obviously the parents, you know, broken families and divorce and single mothers and all those kinds of things that happen then you are not going to have a generation that have seen the example of authority that established that is worth following and this is what so we cannot continue blaming and actually we are missing the point of why God establishing submission because it is for him and for his own plan not for our own good so maybe right. this is also but ultimately I, I would push back a little on that mark because I think it is for our own good for our own God good. always has our best interests at heart when he establishes standards like this and and he, he, in effect, says, okay, if you do not want to follow these standards I'm setting down, then you will live with the consequences, which is dysfunction and disorder. But if you choose to follow the standards I'm laying down, you will experience the blessings that I have as a part of this. But what I'm saying is it's a call for both, call for the authority to be an authority yes. and for us to submit. When he's calling us to submit to our parents, in a way, he's calling the parents to do the authority over their kids and to stop oh, sure. that. Sure. You know, because he's, the parents are his God's children. As That's well. one of the reasons why this is the most important of all the institutions. If this, and by parents, I mean the whole family, if this isn't working properly, 
Everything else is going to crumble. Everything else will fall to one degree or another. It will not be functioning the way God wants it to function. Because if it isn't learned here, it will not be learned uh, as easily. Maybe that's the right way to say it. And so, um, and I think that's one of the one of the really key issues that's attached to this fifth commandment, the sanctity of human authority. Where do you learn that? You learn that in the home. And if you don't learn it in the home, it's going to be much more difficult to learn that. You're going to learn it, and, and I hope you understand what I mean by it. Are you, are you going to learn it in the, in, the, in the public educational system? Probably not. Are you going to learn it in government? No, heavens no. There's incredible hypocrisy and inconsistency in government at all levels. And so all I'm saying is, if, and that's why that, that breakdown, and God is saying this so clearly here. And if we go to Deuteronomy 6, where Moses reiterates and reviews the law again, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. What do you do with truth like that? He says, Put this in your heart. What's the second thing? You, you love the Lord your God with your heart. So what else do you teach this to your children? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, 7, 8, 9. Teach it to your children. How? By formally instructing them. And then secondly, just talking to them about this. As you walk by the way, as you lie down, as you get up, your normal patterns, normal aspects and dimensions of your life, just talk to your kids about the Lord. Oh, John, look, Jonathan, look at the beautiful sky as it's sunset. Look at the sky that God's painting. Now, at one level, you can scientifically go, well, that's an explanation of all the sun rays going through. Yes, or you can say, God created the world in such a way that the sun shines through the clouds in such a way that it creates this gorgeous, beautiful, same way with the sunset. You can assign that, well, it's the sun as it is, as we are as we're moving around the sun, we get to that point where it looks like the sun is on a high, but it really isn't the sun that's moving. I mean, that's you can speak scientifically, or you can say, God made this world in such a way that this spectacular sunrise evidences his love for beauty and order. Right now we're in spring. My wife's flowers are starting to come up. The daffodils are ready. They're done. Pretty much the tulips are up. Some of her azaleas are just starting to come out. You can say, well, there's a scientific explanation of this. It all has to do with the cycle of spring, etc." Or you can say, God created the cycle and all these things in such a way that when they come out, they're spectacular in their beauty. God loves beauty. God loves variety. God loves order. God loves diversity. You see it in everything he does. That's what Moses was getting at. Your kids pick up many other habits of home. Good. Many other yes. Yes. Good habits as well as bad habits, but good habits, good patterns, good disciplines for life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do one more here because we have 32 seconds. Number 13, you shall not murder. Now, I want to make this really, really important. The word for murder there is rasa in Hebrew. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but this is premeditated murder. It's a very special word that he's choosing. So what's the principle we can get from this? The sanctity of human life. From God's perspective, life is sacred. Why? Well, among, uh, among other reasons, he created human life in his image. Ethically, ethically speaking, 
The image of God concept is a foundational concept for ethics. It establishes the unique value of Tom. It isn't only because Jesus died for him, but it's also because he created him in his image. Tom resembles God and represents God. He's an he's inherent, innate value to God. Therefore, it matters how I treat him. James chapter 3, verse 19 says, Do not curse another human being. Why? Because they bear the image of God. So if I curse Tom, in effect, whom am I cursing? I'm cursing God, because God made him, created him in his image. So this becomes, this is, this is so foundational. Yeah, let, let me put it another way, and then I'll close. The sanctity of human life. God wants us to see human beings the way he sees human beings. Of innate worth and value. And that is the basis, the foundation stone for a lot of ethical issues we're facing in 2017. It relates to abortion. It relates to euthanasia. It relates to stem cell research. It relates to genetic and reproductive technologies because all of those relate to how you look at a human being. So, how's, that, how's that work with soldiers? During war. Oh, Tom. <laughs> no. But I saw a movie where a guy didn't want to do that, and he did other yeah. things, you know. Yeah. Well, the United States of America has been uh, fairly unique, and other nations have started to do it. But the United States of America, we did so during, during the Civil War even, recognized something called a conscientious objector. Mm -hmm. That if your conscience is such, usually stemming from your religious values or your teaching, that you cannot take up a gun and shoot mm -hmm. another human being. Uh, you still need to serve your country, but we'll give you alternative forms of service. Mm -hmm. um, now, Tom asked this question in the last seconds of class. <laughs> this is a big bunny trail. But this is why the idea of the just war has developed. And that is a whole other concept that we can maybe talk about, but I'll probably forget about it and won't talk about it next week. Closely related to that would be the issue of the death penalty. Well, that's another thing, capital punishment, the whole issue. So, um, but both of those, we're just going to keep lying on the table. We're not going to deal with it right now. Lying on the table with so, but I, if you want me to, we'll address those next week. But at first, right out of the chute, what I'm trying to do, and I hope we're accomplishing that, is to see these commandments as principles for living and principles for laying a foundation for an ethical framework for life. That's really what God is doing here. These are the standards by which you are to live your life. Ancient Israel in 1446 B.C., when this is first given, or for you and me in 2017 A.D., 3,000 years, well, not quite 3,000 years. time of our revolution, our founders <coughs> defined sound religion. The second principle of sound religion was this, God's establishing the law for happy living. Yeah. Well, and the word that our founders used was a very important word to them, was virtue. That, that, that word comes up again and again and again in the writings and letters and in, uh, in, in, in the, the way in which they discussed the founding principles of this nation. That's another bunny trail, okay? We are not getting very far 
we only did like three verses today. So I have a question about that. Have, have you covered submission here as direct application today of what we're doing? Back in Genesis, when we were talking about the, the idolatry and yes. burying the idols, yes. um, we made uh, comments about the Catholic Bible versus the non-Catholic Bible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And how they've, they, they changed verses three and four. Mm -hmm. right? Can you do the same? Can we press reverse for just a week and how you cover submission here? Can we cover that three through six piece? If you really didn't, didn't do it last week, but it, it has such implication to how materialistic we are as a culture, also. Mm. There, there's another we issue can. Words that I think we use more typically is obedience rather than submission. And I'm wondering why that is. Well, Obedience as opposed to submission? Is that yes. what you mean? Well, I would, I would make the case that uh, submission is a very large circle, and within that large circle is a circle of obedience. But it's more than that. Submission is more than just obedience. But obedience is a part of that. In, in other words, it's a reflection of that. Because submission as a term in the Greek term that's used in Ephesians 5.32, for example, is that inclination to follow and that disposition to yield to authority. That's what that means. And uh, so that's more than just obedience. It, it's, it's a broader idea than just obedience. Obedience is a part of that, but it's not all that it is. I mean, this is. I mean, you guys are asking fantastic questions here. I just want to make sure that that it's all right. I mean, we have been down, I think, seven bunny trails today, which is keeping us from being in the text. <laughs> but I mean, if I mean, I'm okay with that. I, I just, if you're okay with it, then it's okay. If it's not, and you say stop all these bunny trails, I'll do what you want me to do. So. But there are several bunny trails, including the one Glenn just brought up, that is on that are on the table. So. Maybe the Lord will come and I won't have to deal with them next week. But if he doesn't, then we'll deal with them next week. Father, we're grateful for our time around the Word of God. I, I hope among the many things we've discussed that uh, the manner being reminded of a really important truth about Exodus 20. This isn't just the Decalogue. This isn't just the Ten Commandments. This isn't just the law. These are foundational principles for living. They give us, even now, in 2017, a way in which we are to look at the ethical obligations we have to you and the ethical obligations we have to one another. We learn the importance of authority in our families. And we learn from you the sanctity of human life. It matters how we treat other human beings. And uh, we're not quite done with that. But these are very significant principles for living that we can't ignore. Uh, we, we, if we want to be all that you want us to be, uh, both as people and as a culture and civilization, it's important we hear to these. So it's in that spirit that I pray for our country because, Lord, we have lost our way in so many of these areas. We are firmly anchored in midair, and our children and our grandchildren, we're starting to see the evidence of this. And it is, it is reminding us again that the fundamental issue of the human condition isn't political or social or financial or economic, it's spiritual. And until a person gets right with the Lord Jesus, 
they're never going to be able to do all that you want them to do to your glory. And they're never going to work. Things are never going to work right. We need you. We need that spiritual transformation that you uh, bring through the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling spirit. Help us to be men of faith. Help us to be men that are serious about the things of God and be men that bring honor and glory to you as we represent you to a world that needs to see Christ. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.